News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And it's Monday, the 20th September. I'm Stuart Lohman, standing in for Alec Hogg. He'll be away for the next week and a bit. Um, but in the studio with me, we've got Nadia Swat and Justin Roberts. Nadia, good weekend your side? Very good. I went to the demonstration in Seapoint against mandatory vaccination, and it was exhilarating, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> and yourself, Justin? No, it was a good weekend, Stu. Weather in Cape Town holding up nicely, but I see in Joburg it's warming up nicely. The great golf conditions, so I expect to see on the course on Friday, given that it is a public holiday. <laughs> yeah, I think we're all looking forward to that short week, as I'm sure the community is. Uh, just on the show today, uh, Bronwyn Nielsen chats to David Shapiro. He gives us the latest in the markets, uh, talks a bit of global tech stocks, as well as the slight dip in the local market. Now it's from the conference. I know we've just completed the second conference and we are preparing for the third conference in March next year. But uh, two clips from there, we chat to Martin Freeman and Rob Hershoff. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it was the Martin Freeman's uh, sit down with Alec Hogg, which was great. He spoke about immigration. And then Rob Hershoff gave a talk, which was it's like edge of your seat stuff. <laughs> I'm sure we're all looking forward to that. And then obviously our partners from the Financial Times give us the latest on the international front with China news not really improving, as you'll see with the dot-com some published stories, which are running quite nicely. Justin, one of the top three is the Evergrande uh, contagion. I know you put that together. Yeah, big problems there in China, Stu. Just negative sentiment we've seen with uh, President Xi going after a whole bunch of industries, the latest now being the real estate industry that affecting Evergrande, a 300 billion debt burden. To put that into perspective, Stu, that's only a little bit smaller than the South Africa's GDP, annual GDP for the year of 2020. Uh, so very scary stuff there. And then you've obviously got the tech stocks on the back foot and that sentiment or that weak sentiment filtering through to the US where we've finally seen some weakness, although stocks holding up are much better there than they are locally and in China. Other stories doing well on the dot-com site is Andrew Kenny wrote a piece on over the weekend on the battle, the war against Ivermectin, he calls it. He says it's a bit of a demented war. And then the panda response to that Nathan Gethin um, in article they did is still being very well read. Nods, I know we're still not on, live on YouTube. Uh, any other videos that the community should know of? No, so this is our last day of the seven-week ban. So from tomorrow, things should go as as usual, uh, but there's a, a video that well, I've put together of the coverage from Saturday's demonstration, which is worth a watch. And Thursday's flash briefing is also Excellent. still there. It covers the news headlines, SAA and such. Thanks, Nuts. And just on the podcast side, your interview with Herman Ederling still being very well listened to. It shows the power of the archive. Uh, Shalbert is Pothoi with Jan Mankies. They spoke about the Lewis Group. And then your interview with Mark Girardot, I think that's from June, has still been listened to. That's on the natural versus the vaccine-induced immunity. Uh, but let's check in on the markets and news. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs-meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. South Africa's Constitutional Court backed the Electoral Authority's decision to allow political parties more time to register candidates for municipal elections. 
The judgment enables the ruling ANC to field candidates in all of the nation's wards after it failed to register candidates for at least 35 municipalities by a previous deadline. Opposition parties, including the DA and the Encarta Freedom Party, had opposed the registration extension. The Constitutional Court held that the decision of the Electoral Commission is not unconstitutional, unlawful and invalid, the court said in a statement on its Twitter account. Municipal elections will take place on the 1st of November. And the ANC is riven by factionalism and thugs and gangsters have infiltrated the process for selecting electoral candidates, according to an internal report cited by the City Press newspaper. The findings, tabled at a one-day sitting of the party's National Executive Committee, come less than two months before municipal elections in which the party will try to claw back control of three major cities. During all the various stages of the candidate selection process, the Electoral Committee and its structures encountered fierce factional tendencies. It said the internal rivalries were now at epidemic levels. And after failing to convince the Constitutional Court to rescind his 15-month prison sentence, Jacob Zuma is now heading to the African Court on Human and People's Rights in Search of Justice. Zuma's lawyers argue that being sent to prison without a fair trial or a way to appeal infringes his human rights as in, as in, and is in contravention of both African and international human rights law. Local courts have maintained that Zuma had more than ample opportunity to state his case and make presentations to avoid prison, but that he chose to ignore all of them. Thanks, Nadia. It seems all roads lead to 1 November with the municipal elections, but we'll see. Justin, yeah. uh, on the market front? The JSE All Share Index has started the week sharply lower at 61,200. In the currency markets, the, re- the rand has weakened against all the major currencies to 14 rand 75 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 17 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 28 cents to the euro. Gold is slightly firmer at $1,758 an ounce. A Kruger Rand will cost around 27,500 Rand. Brent crude is lower at $74.40 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 640,000 Rand. In the financial news, Rand Merchant Investment, RMI, announced plans to unbundle its large stakes in discovery and momentum directly to its shareholders. RMI is currently the largest shareholder in both companies, owning 25% of discovery and 27% of momentum. Following the unbundling, RMI shareholders will hold shares in these companies directly. The RMI board hopes this move will unlock material shareholder value by shrinking the discount of which RMI currently trades to its underlying intrinsic value. RMI shares were up around 15% on the JSE today. Growing investor angst about China's real estate crackdown rippled through markets on Monday, adding pressure on President Xi Jinping's government to prevent financial contagion from destabilizing the world's second largest economy. Hong Kong real estate giants, including Henderson Land Development, suffered the biggest sell-off in more than a year as traders speculated China will extend its property clampdown to the financial hub. Fears of contagion from China's Evergrande Group intensified, dragging down everything from bank stocks to Ping'an Insurance Group and high-yield dollar bonds. Thanks, Justin. It seems these investment companies, their biggest challenge is to unlock value. I know NASPAS might not see itself as one, but with the tents in holding, it's been their biggest challenge. I see now RMI on the same boat. <laughs> exactly, Sue. Well, when the NASPAS management announced uh, corporate action, the share price tends to retract at least with R- in RMI's case, it seems to be doing pretty successfully well, 15% up for the day. So it seems, or at least the market thinks it's the correct move. Excellent. Thanks, Justin. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes.
Today is Monday, September 20th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The submarine deal and the new security pact between the U.S., the U.K., and Australia continues to rattle global leaders. And as gas prices continue to surge, the U.K.'s biggest energy groups have asked their government for emergency help. Plus, we'll talk to our global China editor about Beijing's crackdown on its big technology companies and what the political end game is. The main impetus behind all of the new laws, the new grabs, you know, into companies like Ant Group are all motivated by this obsession with control that the Chinese Communist Party has. I'm Jess Smith, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need... The new security partnership between the U.S., the U.K., and Australia continues to ripple around the globe. The agreement is aimed at countering China's influence in the region. China lashed out immediately, describing it as playing geopolitical games. France is furious because it means Australia is reneging on a 50 billion Australian dollar deal to buy French submarines. France has recalled its envoys to the U.S. and Australia and derided the U.K. as a fifth wheel on the coach. Washington, meanwhile, is making an effort to de-escalate the diplomatic crisis. Yesterday, U.S. President Joe Biden asked for a call with French President Emmanuel Macron. The gas crisis in the UK and Europe continues to worsen. Yesterday, the UK's biggest energy groups asked the government for an emergency package worth billions of pounds to help them survive surging gas prices. Today, Britain's business and energy secretary is due to meet with energy suppliers to discuss the crisis. Prices have tripled since the start of the year to record highs. And last week, two fertilizer plants in the UK suspended production as a result. Here's the FT's energy editor, David Shepard. This started at the tail end of winter. Winter carried on in much of the Northern Hemisphere deep into April this year, meaning people kept the heating on. We burned through more gas than we normally would and and drew down a lot of storage. But what would normally happen is that over the summer months, when people turn the central heating off and, and stop burning so much gas, the industry uses that opportunity to refill underground storage, for example. That's not happened to the same degree this year. One of the big factors has been lower supply coming into Northwest Europe from Russia. Some see signs that Russia could be trying to essentially squeeze the Northern European market, boosting prices uh, to effectively put pressure on the EU and particularly Germany to hurry up and approve the startup of the highly politically controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline. That's not the sole reason, though. You know, Russia potentially, yes, could be playing with things at the margin. Others just see signs that Russia has had to refill its own gas storage. But it's true that gas supplies globally are quite tight right now. That's the FT's energy editor, David Shepard. In China, more than a billion people have an app on their phone called Alipay. It's a phenomenally successful financial payments app that lets Chinese consumers pay for things online, in stores, and it even offers loans. Here's a Chinese TV commercial for Alipay. You can see a father and son in a clothing store, and the son's trying on a sharp new suit for a job interview. He looks at the price and his face drops, so dad offers to pay. 
Then the son looks up at the dad with a confident smile and says, No problem, dad. I can pay with Huabei. That's Alipay's credit And then he says, Next month, hopefully, I can earn the money back. Dad's proud of his son and wishes him good luck on the interview. And then the tagline, with Alipay, life's good. But Chinese regulators are making life very hard for Alipay's parent company, Ant Financial. They've ordered Ant to split off Alipay's lucrative loans unit and create a separate app. They also ordered Ant to hand over all their user data. James King is the FT's Global China editor. He's been following all the new regulations and policies Beijing's pushed through to gain control of the country's big tech companies and the data they've collected on Chinese citizens. Ever since about 2013, it's been clear that Xi Jinping, China's authoritarian leader, has wanted to do this. I mean, he said way back then that whoever controls data has the upper hand. James, can you tell me a bit more about what Beijing is up to with its Alipay restructuring? Because as you've reported, and also as we just heard in the commercial, Alipay is about a lot more than just online payments. It's connected to a much bigger array of services. And one of the main ones is something called Jiebei, which is a way of using the data that's embedded into your mobile phone as a means to assess your creditworthiness, right? And then according to whether or not the algorithm thinks you're creditworthy, it will say to you that it will lend you a certain amount of money at a certain interest rate at the tap of your mobile phone screen. But it has meant that Ant Group holds a huge amount of data far beyond just the data that it would have from being a payments app. And so what, uh, according to this exclusive story by the Financial Times, what we think is happening now is that Beijing has said that they want to strip out the data from this operation and put it into a joint venture company in which Ant Group will have a stake, but it will not have the majority stake. The majority will be owned by several state-owned companies. And what this gives Beijing is access at any time it wants into this enormous trove of data of, you know, some of the most personal things that Chinese do every day. And this is also happening after a long-running and really high-profile dispute between Beijing and Jack Ma, the founder of Ant Group. So now with this deal... Does it mean that Jack Ma caved in to pressure from Beijing? Of course, Jack Ma caved, and so did the Ant Group, and so would any company, whether they're state-owned or, or privately owned in China. There only is one boss in China, and that's partly what this whole issue is all about. The Chinese Communist Party is sending the signal that it is firmly in control, and if data is going to be such a big part of the way 21st century economies work, then it wants to be in control of that too. Do you have any idea who might be Beijing's next target? And and also more broadly, what does this tech crackdown mean for other entrepreneurs and their ability to innovate? And what does it mean for foreign investors? We don't know which company might be the next target, but uh, it's absolutely clear by looking at the different laws that have come out and are now either in draft form or have already been adopted this is a deep campaign with a long antecedents, and uh, you get the sense that Beijing is going to pursue this until the end.
because you just never know which huge regulatory broadside is going to be blasted at you uh, from which direction. Very little inkling of all of these laws and regulations and policies that have been issued over the last several weeks were telegraphed in any way at all. So, you know, it's a very tough operating environment for these companies, that's for sure. So, James, if Xi Jinping's goal is to create a high-tech authoritarian superpower, does it look like he's going to succeed? I mean, do you see anything that might trip him up? The aim of of Xi Jinping to create what I called in this article a techno-authoritarian superpower, or as some other analysts call it, digital Leninism, is really a new frontier in the way that countries run. It's far from clear to me or to the analysts that I spoke to that that this is something that can be done. On paper, it seems feasible. The idea that if you know what everybody's doing at all times of the day, you can control them easier, that does seem logical to draw that conclusion. But does that, in the end, make the regime more sustainable? Does it, in the end, make it longer lived? Um, I think those are questions that, that really can't be answered at the moment. But there has to be a chance that people will rebel against this because they don't want to be suffocated by this uh, very intrusive control. You know, every movement they make can be monitored by the Chinese Communist Party. James King is the FT's global China editor. Before we go, the New York Metropolitan Opera has had a really hard pandemic. It's had lockdowns and labor disputes, and it hasn't staged any live opera in 18 months. But curtains will rise again next week. And the piece chosen for this momentous occasion is not an old favorite like La Boheme or Porgy and Bess. It's a two-year-old opera called Fire Shut Up in My Bones. It's a story of child abuse, desire for revenge, and forgiveness. It's by the Grammy Award-winning composer and jazz trumpeter Terence Blanchard. It's his debut at the Met, and it's also the Met's first-ever African-American composer. You can read more on all these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. This podcast is supported by Morgan Stanley, whose Thoughts on the Market podcast brings you concise takes on the markets and the events that are moving them. It's like a personal briefing with Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley's chief investment officer, and his colleagues. Backed by the Morgan Stanley Research Team, they share insights and perspectives on current events and what these events could mean for markets and the world economy. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Search for Thoughts on the Market in your podcast app. I'm Bronwyn Nielsen. With me is David Shapiro from Sassman Securities. David, good to have you in my sights. 
And uh, we've come off a, a relatively depressing week in the South African uh, stock market with the rand under pressure again, uh, commodities coming down. Is it an awful down scenario or is this a temp- temporary blip in the overall machine uh, of the market? I, I, I wish I knew, but these are, the, uh, these are times that really challenge us because, um, you know, we can always say, oh, this is a small-term correction, but at the back of your mind, is a whole laundry list of things that we have to navigate, you know, and it keeps testing us, well, how long is this going to last? What is going to turn it around? We can't complain. We've come through such a wonderful year. And I mean, for equity markets, it's been so good because of the stimulus measures, also because of low interest rates. And we're coming to that end of the period. So now we get into the difficult issue as we come out of COVID or as economies come out of COVID, you know, where's the next move going to be? So I remain optimistic on equity markets. I, I don't think we're going to get the same pace, but I think just through September, October, just fasten your seatbelts. You know, it's going to be a bit of a ride. So let's talk a bit about the technology stocks in the U.S. coming mm. off quite strongly, and that's as a result of feared increases in corporate taxes in that space. Now, you've long been mm. a supporter of the technology theme. Yep. Does this worry you at all? No, no. I think if you want to play this correctly, and the problem is that you've got to look through all the noise. You know, if we look ahead, uh, it's very easy to be distracted in the short term. But if you look ahead, technology is still changing the way that we live and are going to live. And in so many areas, uh, you know, whether it's health, um, there's no doubt that as we come out of this pandemic, um, governments are going to relook at the whole health scenario. They're going to look at public health. They're also going to make sure that they're never caught in a situation like this. Then we've got this, uh, I don't want to say obsession, because it's not an obsession. It's something we have to do with environment, you know, with environmental issues. So that is still changing the way that we're going to use energy or uh, use power. Uh, You've got the whole motor car industry going through this electrification and it goes on and on. Digitization, fintech, the way that we actually interact with banks, the way that we look after it. So those are all very dominant themes that are going to continue um, changing, uh, you know, just just, uh, driving the, the global economy. So, have that at the back of your mind. What happens in the short term, it always happens in markets. You know, it's never an easy ride. So, you know, so I, I remain, I stick to the companies that we've got. But, um, you know, when you look at the commodity markets at the moment, yeah, they can scare you. <laughs> they can I, really I scare you. To, mm. I want to come back to the commodity markets and just mm. stay with the U.S. for a moment because we've also seen strong retail sales out of mm. the U.S. and mm. that has given strength to the U.S. dollar with the thoughts that that U.S. tapering is back on the cards, i.e. the Federal Reserve will mm. in, increase interest rates sooner than expected. Again, this is something that just buffets the market mm. one way or the other just a little smidgen of a thought that we're going to see increased interest rates in the u.s and emerging markets tumble obviously that's where the rand is under pressure mm. and the u.s dollar strengthens you know tapering is tapering is not raising rates they're not going to raise interest rates all they're doing is taking back um the liquidity issues or buying bonds of the market which they don't need to do anymore because i think that the market will take over that role 
So I think they're just crowding out other players, you know, making it more difficult for anybody who wants to go into the bond market. So I think that's a natural course. And I don't think there's any reason to to be too um, you know scared of it as they start to 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 pull back. In fact, it's 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 really a positive sign. I think what does happen is that during these weak periods, the headlines start to dominate. And if you want a list of headlines, you know, everything from shrinking corporate profits to to inflation to uh, uh, tapering, you name it, you name it. You know, we can give you a whole long list for you to worry about. And and it, it's just natural in a time like this that those headlines start to dominate. But I don't think that I don't think that uh, you know tapering is necessarily a, something evil that's going to you know really cause the markets to collapse. And, and it is being seen, as you say, through those headlines as this mm. um, huge event that uh, mm. will shake up the market uh, beyond mm. recognition. You know, I want Next. to just add one thing as well. Just the, you know, the Fed has got uh, has to keep price stability and employment. It's got a dual role, so employment is very important. And you've heard uh, you've heard Powell, and he's conscious of employment. Employment comes through confidence. And if you take confidence out of a market, you're not going to get back to the employment that he wants. So he's very, very sensitive to both issues, you know, to uh, getting inflation up, which they managed to do, but also about re, uh, you know, getting people back to work. And they've still got a lot of challenges there. So I think the Fed is not going to do anything that will kind of destabilize markets because whether we like it or not, markets are an indicator of, of, of sentiment and how people feel. So I've spoken to Andre Silias from Treasury One a number of times on this platform and his one concern over the RAND, and I know you don't like calling the RAND because it's impossible, <laughs> but his one big concern over the RAND is the, the local elections and what we could potentially see arising from a rioting, looting perspective mm-hmm. that that could be back on the cards. Is that something that is in your thought process? You, you know, I, I, it, it, it's strange because I drove through um, last Friday. I went to a funeral that was in Germiston, and I drove back through Malvern East and through Joburg, and I looked at it. and And when you look and see the immense poverty, and you start to see the difference of how the other side lives. You know, we live in the northern suburbs. You realize what immense issues and problems this country has, and how easy it is to set people going, you know, and, and there, there, there's a lot to it. I think there's a, you know, we've got to work very, very hard to, to get that under control. So it isn't, it's always an issue. What's worried me more on, on the RAND has been this, this collapse of the iron ore price. In May, it was $230 a ton. We're now below a hundred, a lot to do, all to do with the Chinese. And then also, the complete retreat in platinum, palladium, and rhodium. Now, this was giving us the boost right up to the end of July. You know, that's not long ago. That's less than two months. This was driving the economy and driving the confidence that we were seeing in our market with the um, better, you know, with, with, with the better tax receipts and uh, views that, you know, that, that, that things were going to happen in the mining side. That's gone all overnight. It's just vanished. And for me, that's a big concern that this is going to filter through the SA economy. You know, it's not there yet because we're still living in the basking in those results that we saw in June. But those are historic. So uh, 
you know, I'm a bit concerned that those numbers are going to uh, kind of sting us, you know, somewhere along the line. Someone's going to change all the, you know, their spreadsheets and relook at where we are. Talking about Chinese markets, Evergrande is another yeah. headline that is causing yeah. key concern and, and many saying watch out for potential financial contagion in yeah. the Chinese economy. Mm. Are you in that camp? It's not only the Chinese economy. The, you know, Evergrande or Evergrande, whatever you want, however you want to pronounce it, uh, there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of outside companies that have lent money to it. And... Uh, you know, many, many European banks um, are holding their debt. And the worry is what happens uh, with that debt? Will they pay that debt? And, of course, you have the contagion effect. You know, this is, this is a mini, I hope it's a mini, uh, Lehman Brothers. You know, and if this goes, um, this is a massive company. And it, it, it's so typical of what we have seen in the past, uh, um, you know, with property companies. They tend to go out there build a lot of stock, can't sell it, and come under pressure. We saw it in the 089. We've seen it in so many, in Canary Wharf with the Reichman brothers, you know, so many incidences in history where property companies have just folded, you know, having very grand ideas. So this is, yeah, it's, it's hopefully the Chinese government does interfere, but it, it could have long-term consequences. Uh, you know, I, when I say long-term, it could have uh, immediate consequences on some of the financial markets. I mean, how how keenly are you watching that news flow, David? I mean, you know, if, if we're talking about something, we start mentioning Lehman Brothers, yep. um, then we, you know, we all yep. always on the edge of our seats. Yep, Don't, that's how markets are. I remember uh, the subprime crisis, and I'm tr still trying to remember which Fed governor at, um, at Jackson Hole uh, I can't. I, I don't. I don't even want to try and pronounce it or remember that. But there was one Fed governor who said, "Oh, the subprime crisis. You know, it's only two point six percent of the total property market." Blah blah blah. Yeah, that was it. You know, famous last words. We know what the consequences were. We know how far those toxic products had spread throughout the global economy. So, um, just be careful. I know I'm not. I don't want to be an alarmist, but I'm saying. Um, we don't know the extent of it, but I think that to be fair and to put everybody's minds at rest, today the banks go through continual stress tests. You know, in other words, um, the authorities are looking for these kind of issues and whether they can, um, you know, uh, overcome them. And I think all the all the companies will be, be overcome. But I mean, it's 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 more a worry within the Chinese economy than maybe outside of it. And you're right. We've got to establish whether it's Evergrande or Evergrande because I had Nick Kunza last week saying Evergrande and then I had Joanne Bannon from Sterling Wells saying Evergrande. Kind of tomato, tomato. So I'm going with Evergrande for now. Um, it sounds more grand, yeah. It does, doesn't it? It does. Let's also talk about the, the local environment. Well, I suppose, I mean, mm. obviously, Sibani is still water with its secondary listing yeah. on the NYSE. is also hugely uh, offshore as well um, as a company. Mm. But their deal last week, yeah. 7 billion rand further into that lithium space. Uh, you know, we've got the, the man who is, as everyone says, this master capital allocator still pursuing uh, battery energy and um, this uh, strategy of his really coming to fruition. He's putting money behind yeah. his intent. That's, that's what I like. He's very, very forward thinking. 
And the fact that he was brought up in gold and then decided to go to platinum and now going to lithium, he understands mining and understands where demand is. So I know his shares have come under a lot of pressure because of the fall in the palladium price and that. But he's got a much broader horizon. Or, um, or and, and that's where, look, you cannot ignore um, – you cannot ignore where um, motor cars are going, you know, where mobility is going, as they call it today. It's all about it's all about electrification. And uh, the big thing at the German car show, I don't think there were any combustion sh- uh, cars on show. Everything was electric. And um, and I think that's why platinum is coming under so much pressure. Uh, people looking 10 years down the line and saying, where's the demand for the metal going to be? And it's going to be about battery power and about chip power. So, um, and the world wants to go that way. So he's, you know, he's he's ahead of. I won't say he's ahead of his time because we know it's going to be in lithium. But he's making the right moves. And you know, when you look at Neil Froneman, just you can't look at him on the short term. You've got to look down the line. So maybe David, if I was to go so far as to say that this. Pressure in the Sibania still water share price right now is an opportunity if you want to get into that long-term game. I think just watch it. You know, you don't have to be in now. You don't have to always go in. But we're, you're going to find a bottom. Somewhere down the line, it'll settle down and start tracking sideways. And I think that's going to be the time that you come in. For the meantime, you know, the falls are still very pronounced and sharp. And there's still a lot of uncertainty out there. But uh He's not going anywhere, you know. I don't. I wouldn't be too, you know. I wouldn't be scared of Neil. Um, anything dramatic happening, but look, commodity markets—that's the nature. When you get into that area of the market, this is what's happened, you know. It's um, you know, this is exactly. <laughs> and then, David, we also just, uh, you know, I mentioned obviously strong retail sales out mm. of the U.S. Yep. really underpinning the U.S. dollar. But in the South African space, last week we had mm. a week retail data um, showing that the the consumer a a little um, not as strong as we potentially were anticipating after some of the results. I mean, first round uh, coming out with strong results and showing that the the strength of the consumer was there. But weaker in in South Africa, that retail sales data. And then we've got CPI coming out this week. And we've also got the South African Reserve Bank making a decision on interest rates on the Mm. 23rd of September. Anything that we need to take cognizance of there? Yeah, they're not going to raise rates, not in this environment. No, it would be very honest no. if they did, wouldn't no, it? No, no, not, not with commodity prices going where they are. And I think I'd love to hear what the governor has to say because I've been a bit concerned that this is not in the market. I don't think we've been pricing it in by the way that a lot of companies are responding. Uh, I think retail sales is also a function of confidence. And remember, we had the uprisings or the riots that we had in Nutella. And I think it also just threw people off. Again, you know, you're still, we're still in lockdown. We're only coming out of it now. We're only starting to feel our feet. We're only going into summer. And uh, it's, it's, and it's also reflective of the broad economy. You know, I just, things are tough. And while, while markets are okay and have been okay, I think down on the ground, it's a lot tougher than, uh, you know, than we imagine. We are not the U.S., you know, sadly. Well, David, on that note, we're going to leave it. I'm sure we'll catch up later in the week. David Shapiro from Sassman Securities. I'm Bronwyn Nielsen for Business News. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, 
and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Billionaire and scion of a mining dynasty, Rob Hersoff has worked under the direct tutelage of media mogul Rupert Murdoch and luxury goods baron Johan Rupert. After three decades abroad, Hersoff chose to return to South Africa. He was one of the distinguished speakers at the second Business Investment Conference earlier this month. This is an excerpt of his talk. Thank you, Alec, and thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, I hate to be the purveyor of bad news, or um, and I... And I know everybody, even my wife said, can't you end on an optimistic note, which I'm still trying to think of. Maybe in 19 minutes' time I'll have that. But my message very, is, is very simple today. It's, it's why did I come back to South Africa? Am I insane? Um, that South Africa is not investable. It really isn't. From a, an international perspective, from an FDI perspective, international money would be insane to invest in South Africa right now. South Africa can be fixed easily, but never by the ANC. They're incompetent, they're kleptocrats, they're ineptocrats. We have idiots running the asylum. We really do. Lunatics running the asylum. And, uh, you know, the real heroes of South Africa are not the billionaires. They've gone. They've disappeared. They've left you in the lurch. The real heroes of South Africa that might save this country, that might generate economic growth, are the people in this room. It's you. It's been left to you to save this country. And then what I'd like to do is give some final comments and some final thoughts, just lessons learned along the way, which you may agree with and you may not agree with. Um, so let's start with why the hell did I come back to South Africa? And there are a number of reasons. One, my incredible parents, dad, 95, mum, late 80s, are alive. They're still ticking. They're in Johannesburg. They will not leave Johannesburg. They will not go to the Cape. They love it up there. And they believe in this country, but you know, every day that I speak to them, they're increasingly frustrated. You read the newspaper, you go crazy. This morning, I read that Duduzani uh, Zuma, that horrific last name that you know, just brings anger into me, is trying to raise money for a presidential bid. That moron, that scion of that scumbag family, and I'm being rude to real scumbags, is running, he wants to run for president. Horrific. Um, the second reason is because I really wanted, you know, my wife and kids to at least see, you know, the last few years of this beautiful country. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, all my businesses in London uh, or overseas that I hadn't written off, the ones that had survived, were being well run. I was chairman, majority shareholder, and the CEOs were saying, Rob, please don't come into the office every day with a new idea because um, <laughs> just let us hit budget. Um, I also wanted to get out of the UK inheritance tax net, which happens after about 17 years in the UK. I lived six years in America and 25 years in Europe and the UK. And I missed South Africa. And that really is something. And I know when people leave this country forever and they cut the link and then they badmouth South Africa because that's the only way they can justify leaving this incredible country, they miss it. You come back, you go to Plate, you go to Hermanus, you go up the Natal coast, you know, you go to the bush, it, there's nothing like it. You cannot live as well as I live in Cape Town anywhere else in the world. 
and I know that. But I gave my, and that's the torture, that's the torture of it all. But I gave my wife a commitment. She's a New Zealander. Uh, she's a doctor that's founded her own business in New York, which is, is built, growing rapidly. And I said to her, you know, we'll, we'll come back. We're going to live extremely well. That you know, because she'd been here on holiday before. The kids are going to love it. The younger kids, they're at school at Wet Pups and Herschel. Um, it's going to be fantastic. I won't get involved in politics. I'll keep my head down. <laughs> I'm not going to invest in any business in South Africa that doesn't have at least 90% of its revenue or revenue potential offshore. Well, I didn't do very well on that one from an airport point of view. And another announcement that Warren and I have today. And, if the, and, I, and I would leave this country in a second if certain things took place. If the tax, uh, if the tax situation became too onerous, if they take our guns away... I'm a firm believer in the Second Amendment, and there's a wonderful sentence in the, in the American Second Amendment that says, to, to protect the individual against the tyranny of the state. That's the justification for having a gun and a gun license in America. To protect the individual against the tyranny of the state. Now, just think about that and the amazing presentation that Justin gave yesterday, where people took to their arms to protect their property because the state did nothing. So those are the, you know, and the final reason was that if civil unrest, and this was four and a half years ago, I said civil unrest is coming. And I said, we will leave if civil unrest is at a point where the police and the army are not incentivized to protect us. And that came very close in KZN a month ago. So remember, we returned in, in, in 2017 when Zuma and his gangsters were running the country. And I said to my wife, we're going to be in South Africa about four years. Why four years? Because all the elements of state had been captured by Zuma and his mobsters. All of them except finance, treasury, media, and the judiciary. When we got back, two months later, basically finance and treasury were under the Zuma nest. All that was left protecting us against the state and against state capture were the media and judiciary. Now, the media can be turned off overnight. The government can just say, you're out of business. Boom, close you down. But the judiciary is a lot harder. So you either do what Erdogan did in Turkey, you change the constitution, and, and within a week, he'd replace 7,000 judges within one week so that all the judicial decisions would go his way, or you do it judge by judge, which I reckon takes six years. And I reckon they were two years into that process. You know, I reckon about 30% of the judges in this country are compromised. You know, decisions will go against the rule of law and in favor of the bad guys. But that's been halted for the time being. So I reckon we had four years of this country and then we'd be gone. Because there'd be civil unrest, there'd be all sorts of trouble, the game would be over. And then Cyril got elected. But he didn't actually win... Mrs. and Corsuzana Lemini, I hate white people, Zuma. And I say that because I know her. She said some really nasty things in private to me. And she's a nasty person. She should have won, but she didn't because Cyril crossed the floor and did a deal with the devil with David Mabuza. And who knows what he promised him. But Cyril won. And my wife said, what does that mean for us? And I said, we've kicked the can down the road. Economic collapse will happen. Civil unrest's coming. We've probably bought two or so years. So I was right, but for the wrong reasons. We've had civil unrest. The police and army were not prepared and not incentivized 
in many cases, as Justin pointed out, to protect us. Much of the army and the police has been compromised. And the country is heading towards economic collapse. It cannot, cannot be fixed under the ANC. This is a spectacular place to live and not a good place to invest or build a business because of the ANC, simply because of the ANC. And I know I've got two minutes left, so I'll be quick. I've traveled to 35 of the 55 African countries. I've met 85 of the 100 richest people in Africa. I know that because I had a list and I said, I'm going to go make sure I meet them all. And I've met every single family office that has invested in Africa. And also many who are looking to invest in Africa. And when I look at Africa and when I make my speeches around the world, I say that there are probably 16 or 17 investable countries in Africa and there are maybe seven or eight that I would personally invest in. South Africa is not one of them. South Africa is not even on my list of 18. But yet, I came back, I've made investments, and I've committed myself to this country. So crazy I may be, as crazy as you are to be here today. So finally, a comment before I just throw a few ideas out there. If Nelson Mandela... If Madiba was alive today, he would vote DA. He would not be voting ANC. The ANC, in 27 years, has achieved almost nothing for the people of South Africa and only achieved for themselves by breaking and stealing. They have broken every state-owned enterprise in this country and they have stolen this country blind. If any of you believe there is a bad ANC and a good ANC, you are being stupid. There is no good ANC. Cyril is not our savior. There are no good people in that organization, and anyone still voting for the ANC is a moron and does not have this country's uh, interests at heart. I know you all agree with what I'm saying, and I know what I'm saying is highly inflammatory, but it's true. And we all know it. So my thoughts before we run out of time, and I, if I can have one more minute. Get your kids overseas with foreign passports. Get them educated overseas. They can always come back. When it comes to the basics, and South Africa has really lost the plot when it comes to the basics, at the schooling, at the education level, we should only really focus on the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Any, anything beyond that at high school clearly is beyond the capabilities of the ANC to deliver to the, to the people. At university, if you're not studying a STEM subject, a hard subject, university is a waste of time. We have too many universities in this country pumping out too many graduates in the arts and, and rubbish like political science. They should be apprentices. They should learn skills like plumbing and engineering and fixing things and building things. That's our only chance. And one thing that really resonated with me with Musi yesterday when he said there was a rolling thunder of democracy and decent leadership in Africa, starting with Malawi, moving to Zambia, and maybe one day Zimbabwe, and maybe in our dreams, South Africa. Our only hope is the ANC will collapse under its own morally corrupt weight and disappear, and that out of the ashes will come the phoenixes of Musi, Vusi, Herman and others, and the DA, and FF+, and good organizations like AFRI Forum that will come out of the ashes and rebuild this country. 
How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Orbis CEO Martin Freeman was another one of the distinguished speakers at the Business Investment Conference earlier this month. Freeman sat down with Business founder Alec Hogg to discuss his experience immigrating to New York. To relive my story again, not only on my side, but in business. But uh, before we get going, you know, it's quite incredible that you and I agreed on this topic such a long time ago, and it's so pertinent at the moment. And I was also thinking that after Jason's amazing uh, discussion and presentation, you might need to move your wine tasting forward to lunch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but let, let, let's just start with you, because you're now, you're the CEO of Orbvest, and Orbvest is a partner of ours, and we know that, I know a lot of you here have actually invested in Orbvest, so you're talking to quite a few of your investors as well. But just from, from your side, you, you really had uh, a, a very... A spectacular career here in South Africa. Um, we've we've heard of of what Transaction Capital has done. Bayport company that you were very in, intimately involved with, and, and I think um, you can just take us through that story if you don't mind on your travels and and what got you to to decide to leave South Africa. Well, perfect. So I actually live at the moment in New York in Westchester. I've been there for four years. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is people always say to me, did you intend to immigrate? And my answer was, absolutely not. You know, I used to say, seriously, I'll be the last person to turn off the light. And so in my journey, I started in KZN, Exturbinite, and, uh, you know, had a great time building businesses. I love to start businesses literally from employee number one and grow them to scale. And uh, as I went through my journey, I spent 15, 16 years in business here, and then moved into financial services in Gauteng. And it was over that period that uh, we really grew uh, Bayport. I was the co-founder and CEO uh, to significantly sized business. Um, and then my partners at the time were the founders of Transaction Capital. So, you know, who are now quite famous after buying We Buy Cars. And so it was that transition that we sold the majority stake to them around about 2011, 2012 that actually led to part of my journey into immigration. So t- take us from there. What, what took you from having a, a, a pile of cash, having the opportunities that when we know exist in South Africa, to trying your luck elsewhere? So what actually happened was it was quite fortuitous. Uh, Mark Lamberti from MassMart uh, at the time had just sold out to Walmart and he had taken over the reins at uh, Transaction Capital. And uh, what happened was when we sold the majority stake to them, he actually said to me, what do you want to do with your life? And I was thinking about what's the next thing I want to get involved in with. And uh, it just so happened he said to me, well, what about going to Harvard and doing an executive management program? So I spoke to my very kind wife who said, get on a plane and go to the U.S. for six months. And I was there, and it was during that phase that I had an epiphany. And that was the one night, I'll never forget, it was a Friday night. 
and I was walking around in Boston and I was over the Charles River and I looked around and I saw all these youngsters walking around and they just had no worries in the world. And I thought about my kids, I was in Joburg at the time, and I thought, I really miss that. You know, I grew up in Durban, you know, you used to run down the road to your friend's house, and they're just freedom, and make no mistake, you know, on the counter side, South Africans have an incredible life here. Uh, and it was then that it started to really set in, what about this thing called immigration? I was terrified to speak to my wife, because I knew she was in favor of it, and like most people, generally in, in couples, there's one that often wants to think about it and one that doesn't want to discuss it. So it was that difficult decision on the way home on that flight. I remember saying, am I actually going to open this door with my wife or not? And when you did? It was not an easy discussion uh, because before that there were always a whole lot of concerns. You know, once you open Pandora's box, it's not so easy. Um, and especially at the moment, you know, which, what's happened in the last couple of weeks, I know that for a lot of people it's on their mind. You know, I get calls pretty much every single week from people in South Africa. And I know it always goes, it's, well, I've got your number from so-and-so. You know, I just phoned to find out about your business. And then comes the question, how did you get into the U.S.? And so how did you? What, what was your journey into And why? Well, maybe start at the beginning. Most South African immigrants go to the U.K. Yes. Timeline, football, uh, rugby, speak the same language, uh, shitty weather, but... <laughs> There's, there's there are other family connections. Some go to Australia, but the U.S. is a little bit, maybe a little bit different, a little bit of a different decision to go to that country. What took you there rather than the U.K.? So when I was in the U.S., there were two things that I really liked. The first thing was I thought, great place to potentially bring up kids uh, in, in their future, given the fact that I was deeply concerned also, like, what does South Africa hold for my kids for their future in terms of, you know, employment, opportunity, uh, triple B, double E? And then also, you know, I was in Gauteng, which is, you know, in many ways very different to either Cape Town or, or KZN. And I was deeply concerned about my teenage kids driving around at night. Uh, so it's the same concerns I think we all share. And I know I've still got family and friends here and they share the same thing. So... You know, that was the one aspect. The other aspect was my current journey, which is when I was there, I looked at the fundamentals and thought, pretty nice place to invest. You know, they seem pretty stable, and uh, my second passion was real estate. And so I came back and had the discussion, and then I also started to look about real estate and possibly investing either overseas in the UK or in the US. That's an interesting decision. When people emigrate, generally they go to a job or some job that they have, or they've got enough money not to worry about working again, going into a whole new society that you don't know much about, um, it's outside your comfort zones, and now you want to go and invest there as well. How did you tackle that? Well, the biggest challenge, and I think when I speak to people, it really comes down to three things when you start to talk about immigration. The first thing is, without a doubt, how are my kids going to adapt? How is my family going to adapt? Are they going to settle in? Are they going to be okay? Because we underestimate in South Africa the second most important thing, and that's our network. We've got a huge network. You know, we've got friends, family. Uh, everything's a phone call away, no matter what it is in business. You know, Jason was mentioning, he, you know, he probably got hold of a couple of people he knows in his network, and they were there to support him. And then the third thing is for most breadwinners, it's what am I going to do? You know, how am I going to make a living? You know, it's expensive overseas. And it's easy if you're going to a job, as you say, but if you're not, it's a real challenge. 
Okay, so you've now spoken to your wife. She hasn't thrown you out the house. How did, you, how did you convince her to, to think that emigration was a possibility? And surely the family is also involved in this. Well, in fact, the family wasn't, and I think that fear of disclosure is so important for most people in South Africa. You know, when you, when you decide to immigrate, the most important thing is until you're actually comfortable to let everyone know about it, you simply just can't mention it because of, you know, your job, your family, your friends. It's very traumatic for people, and especially your kids, you know, to rip them out of school and take them overseas. So for me, you know, you know I'm a very, uh, you know, should we say emotional type person, I don't really want to put my family through that kind of stress. So I almost saw it as a building phase. I said, look, I've got to start to make sure that I am comfortable that I can transition. So I don't think it's an immediate yes, no. It's more of a transition. So I thought, look, if I can try and at least set up myself to earn some dollars or invest overseas, wherever that might be, at least that will hopefully set the platform for me then finally immigrating if I decide to immigrate. Because I wasn't certain at that point. And when did you actually leave? So I left in 2017. And any thoughts of coming home? And we, when you first arrived there, it, it looked so good from the outside. But once you're in, there is a different reality of living in a, a foreign country for us. I would have said maybe 1%, but after Jason's topic. <laughs> no, you know, I think South Africans always see it as, as this is home. And, you know, when I left, I called it a journey. You know, I said, I'm going on the Freeman journey. You, know, so you go there a couple of years. If it doesn't work out, you can always come home, and it does happen. But I think certainly, you know, there's pros and cons to immigration. You know, make no mistake that in South Africa, as I say, we have a good life. Uh, we've got these amazing, amazing support structures, uh, and um, there's a lot of pros to it. And South Africans still make a lot of money here. You know, when you go overseas to a place where you have no network uh, and it's tough, and the transition is there, uh, it's also difficult. Um, and being over there, when you have situations that arose in the last couple of weeks, it's even more difficult because you're far away and you feel lonely and you feel like you need to support everyone. And so a huge shout-out to everyone for what you went through and managing to come through the other side and being strong in this process. There are, in my opinion, which I say to people, four different stages of immigration. And so the first year is, I call it the honeymoon phase. Everything's great. It's a new toy. You go to new places. It's just fantastic. You probably experience the same thing in the UK. And then the second year, it starts to set in. You're like, wow. So this is really my world. I'm away from friends and family. By year three, you're starting to build your own network and a few friends in that. And then year four, you're on your way. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll see you again tomorrow, same time, same place on the Business Power. See you then. Ciao. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Business. News.